I'll take your Bibles to John chapter 3 tonight. I'm thankful for that song. I'm glad that Jesus is great, even in the little things of life. Every once in a while, I feel little. And that promise, knowing that Jesus can do something wonderful in and through my life, is an amazing promise for me to hold on to. Uh, it's also another amazing promise that even though my life down here is but a vapor, and really pretty insignificant in the whole big scheme of things. But the Bible says that I can earn a crown of righteousness for the works that I do here, to glorify the Lord with my life. What a high calling we have that we can praise and honor the Lord with our life. That's a tremendous truth. John chapter 3 tonight, and before you think I'm going the easy route, I'm going to preach out of verse 16. We're not, but John chapter 3, verse 22 Uh, The Bible says this, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. Now chapter 4 verse 2 tells us that it was not Jesus who was doing the baptizing, but rather it was his disciples that were doing the baptizing for him. The Bible then goes on to say in verse 23, And John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they, ba- and they came and were baptized. Now, I will say, just as a side note, every time I find someone being baptized in the Bible, there is always a significant amount of water found at that location. I have never once found where there's just simply a bowl of water, or somebody says, what doth hinder me from being baptized? And Jesus says, well, all you need is really a cup. And uh, I've never found that in the Bible, and every time I do find someone wanting to be baptized, they're either at a great river, they're at a great lake, or some type of pool somewhere. And I'm just saying that as a side note, because I'm proud to be a Baptist and believe what we believe. Verse 24, for John was not yet cast into prison. Verse 25, then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given from him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is Uh, of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. I want to talk to you tonight on this thought, and it's been speaking to my heart all week long. Jesus is to increase, and Andrew is to decrease. You know, life's not about me. And I don't want to step on anybody's toes or offend anyone tonight, but life is not about you either. Especially when we have this amazing truth that's been revealed to us that 
the God of the universe came to this earth and died on the cross for our sins, when we have that truth and, and we trust in Him as our Savior, we of all people ought to know life is not about us. And we must decrease so that He can increase. Amen. Heavenly Father, I want to ask you tonight your blessing upon this sermon. Lord, I want to ask that you would clearly and distinctively direct me throughout. Lord, I've had in my mind all week long the direction I felt that was necessary to go with this sermon. I've studied much, I've prayed much, but ultimately, Lord, if you detour me at this point in the service, I'll be gladly willing to follow your hand. Lord, I pray that you would use this sermon in the lives of Christians, that it may radically affect people, and that we would not continue to to be who we are, but that we would truly begin to live a life that's focused on increasing Jesus in our life and decreasing ourselves. Father, I pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen. Now, one of the things that truly is disturbing and alarming to me as a pastor, and even more so as a Christian, is just how in our time and in our current day, how cold and despondent Christianity is becoming in the lives of Christians. What once was a fervent heat when somebody began to study the Word of God, now we, we beg and plead for people to just read a proverb a day. Getting someone to commit to reading their Bible through in a year is a tremendous trial of faith, and yet I remember my Granny B, who was an older lady, died around 90 years of age, and she did it several times throughout the year. It just was her natural chore, her natural labor. It was her willingness to study God's Word, and now we beg and we plead with people to become students of the Word of God. And I'm, I'm alarmed at the trend of how we are so unaffected by our belief system now. Well, we know all the right answers. If I were to ask you if Jesus Christ were the Son of God, no doubt most of you would be able to point me to a verse that could prove it. Boy, we've grown up around these truths, have we not? We could probably even share with somebody the plan of salvation. And we know that when, once we're saved and we've met Christ, it ought to radically affect our life as a semi-truck affects a deer when it hits it on the road. It ought to change us, and we know that. But it doesn't so many times. And this week as I was reading my Bible, I've truly been disturbed about it for some time. And I came across a verse that enlightened me as to the reason. In fact, it's a promise of the Bible that this would take place, and this day and age would occur. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, I want to point out to you that the people that this is referring to did have a love for Christ. I also want to point out to you that at one time it was not cold. But because of the iniquity of the age that they were in and the iniquity of the lives uh, that they had, their love for Jesus Christ grew cold. Did you know that if you place your focus entirely on Jesus Christ, it will radically alter your life? If I took a newspaper out into your driveway and I laid it on your driveway, 
Uh, how long would it take that newspaper before it burst out into flames? Well, it would take it quite a while, I would say. I, I don't actually see that happening. However, if I took a magnifying glass and I placed it over that newspaper in your driveway, especially in the heat of the summer, but really any time throughout the year where the sun is out, and I took that magnifying glass and I focused the beams of the sun directly into one spot on that newspaper, you know what would happen? Oh, it would begin to heat up. And we began to see smoke first, and then we might even begin to see a small ember. But eventually, if I concentrate the power of the sun on that newspaper long enough, you know what happens? It catches fire. Here's the solution for our modern-day cold Christianity. How about we focus our lives on Jesus Christ? The sun, if you will. We get Jesus so much a part of our life that our life is no longer lived to please ourselves. It's no longer to please our employer. But Jesus Christ would be the ultimate supreme leader of our life. And whatever he has for us, that is our focus. I want to share with you tonight four ways that we can make Jesus the focus of our life. I want to share with you, first of all, in verse number 27... If we're going to make Jesus the focus of our life, we must first of all be willing to forfeit praise. Now, let me explain to you kind of what's happening in our our passage here. John is ushering in, John the Baptist is ushering in an entirely new era of doctrine and theology. Now, I don't want to mislead anybody here. The era of doctrine that John is introducing perfectly marriages together with what has already been. You see, Jesus was not some radical new development in this dispensation of the gospel. Jesus was always going to come, and Jesus was always the Lamb of God. However, John was the man who was to proclaim how the Lamb that had happened and occurred at Passover and was slain so that the death angel would not uh, go into the homes of the Israelites that evening in Egypt. John was the man that would stand up and proclaim, Behold, if you will, the Passover Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And it was John who was to do this. Now, when you introduce any new campaign or any new idea, you know what comes along with it? Questions. Not all all the time are they uh, uh, bad questions, and not all the time are they contradictory or controversial questions. No, many times they're genuinely seeking an answer, and those are good questions. And that's what happens here. John has a group of disciples who approach him, and I want to share with you what happens in verse 26, or verse 25, we'll start there. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying, and I suppose... John's disciples were trying to answer how baptism uh, married together with the Jews' faith. The Bible goes on to say in verse 26, they ought to go to the guy who had an answer, and, and this has nothing to do with our message. But instead of sitting back when you point out a problem and accuse and figure out how that's not going to work, you know what a good solution is? Go to the man who's trying to introduce something. If you ever have a problem with our our church, you know who the man to go see is? Sean Ogdy. No, no. No, I'm kidding. 
If, if, if you have an issue with our church or with something new that's come, coming up, uh, I don't want you to talk about it with your neighbor. I don't want you to go to your friend and explain to, you all the, all, explain to them all the problems with it. Go to the one who has an answer. And I believe that's a, a biblical thing. But right here, nonetheless, they go to John the Baptist. And the Bible says, And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Now as I read this, I cannot help but detect a tone of jealousy. Now, let's make very clear, these are not Jesus' disciples. Now, they're John's disciples who was pointing them to Jesus. But their loyalty is at this present moment to John. And they come to John and they say, Master, teacher, John, Jesus, the one who you spoke of, him and his disciples are baptizing not far from here. And the reason we've seen a downturn in baptisms is because everybody is going to him. Now I want you to see what his response is in verse 27. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Well, he says, Look guys, I wouldn't have the ministry that I have if it hadn't been a blessing of God to give it to me. The way Paul put it is, and I thank Christ Jesus for counting me worthy to be put into the ministry of the gospel. It was a blessing and an honor to have some part in the kingdom of heaven, and that's the way John the Baptist looked at it. But if we look at John's life, kind of like Paul said, if anybody had any reason to glory, John the Baptist did. Did you know that 70 years before the birth of John the Baptist, his birth is foretold in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Malachi? He was a prophet, and yet other prophets were prophesying about him. That's a pretty tremendous truth. Not only was he prophesied about, but when he did come, he was the first word from God, whether in writing or from a prophet, in over 400 years. So in, in Isaiah's day and in Elijah and Elisha's day, there were other prophets. And we even know that when Elijah's over by the brook and he's a little distracted and he's just a little uh, disappointed with everything that's going on. He says, I and I alone am left to serve you, God. And God says, no, there's a whole bunch more where you came from, Elijah. But John the Baptist was one of a kind. He was the chosen vessel. Could you imagine being the one who was handpicked by God to usher in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? What a compliment that would be. Beyond all of this, he is in the line of Jesus Christ. He is a relative of the Lord Jesus. You remember when Mary told her cousin about Jesus' coming? Do you remember who was in her cousin's womb? It was John the Baptist. And the Bible tells us that John the Baptist left. He, 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 he uh, was joyful over the fact that Jesus Christ was on, about to come to the earth. 
Boy, if anybody had any right to share some praise, it was John the Baptist. But when these men come to him and they say, John, John, it's like Jesus is still in your ministry. You know what John says? I would never have a ministry if Jesus hadn't given it to me in the first place. I want to make very, uh, 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 I want to point out tonight, and I want to make you very aware that this ministry that we have is not my ministry. It is not the first church of Dr. Gene Wolfenbarger. In, in fact, we've even sought how much it would cost to replace the sign, have we not, Dad? And remove the name totally as pastor from, from the sign on his behalf. Look, look, it is not our ministry. We are co-laborers together with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when people come to you and they say, boy, what a good job with that campaign, or, or what a good job you did with bringing that person down the aisle, or what we need to do is we need to deflect every bit of praise and say, boy, I'm just lucky to serve Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of people that will never even hear the message of Jesus Christ, and yet you have been counted worthy to be a servant in the kingdom of God. Oh, I... I, I I, I shudder to think that when singers come up on this platform and they perform a, a, a special, that they go back to their seat and after church they're approached by somebody and, uh, and, and they say, man, I really enjoyed that special. And our singer says, well, I worked on it a long time. And there were certain notes that were difficult, but after I began to practice, I realized that if I would just get there with a little bit more pushing of the diaphragm and a little bit deeper breathing, I figured out a way to sing that to the glory of Jesus. Amen. I hope that there's never a bus captain that brings kids to this church and packs out a bus, and then when the pastor uh, recognizes them publicly, they look at everybody and, and they just, thank you. It's just my reasonable service. We ought to deflect any praise that ever comes our way. Yesterday I was reading an article on how to accept a compliment. And this, this article was saying that it's very rude to deflect a compliment. In other words, it's, it's, it's rude when somebody comes to you and says, Boy, your hair looks good, and then you deflect it to your barber. <laughs> That's rude because they weren't complimenting your barber. You know what I think? I, I, I think when people come to me and they say, Brother Andrew, I appreciate that sermon. All I can say is, praise God. Praise the Lord. Amen. I'm just so thankful that I have the opportunity to preach every week. Praise the Lord. And, and I really don't care what you think about me saying that. I used to, it even used to get in my crawl wrong. But at the end of the day, it's not my word that I'm preaching from. There is no book of Andrew, although there's a pretty studly fella in the Bible named Andrew. Uh, <laughs> I will say if it was not for the Lord Jesus giving me his word and giving me a call and a vocation, I don't know what I would do with my life. But when you come to me and you approach me and say, Brother Andrew, I'm so thankful for you. You know what I'm going to say? I'm thankful that Jesus had an impact on my life, that he's counted me worthy to have an impact on someone else's life. Deflect praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. John says it this way. Oh, I, I, 
I probably am a little bit special. I don't know about you, but I never heard something in my mother's womb and leapt at the, the sound of Jesus loves me. I never did that. John was a special individual, but he did not treat his ministry and he did not treat his life as such. He even put it this way, there cometh one after me whose shoes I am not even will I am not even worthy to unlatch the buckle on his shoes. Well, we ought to be a people who deflect praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have trouble. We have trouble accepting that we at all are weak. And we have trouble. This is what our our world paints to us. From the time that we're just small children, our world tells us that if you put your mind to it, you can do it. And if you'll just get a goal and strive for that goal, you can achieve that goal. Even modern-day Christendom is trying to take away any idea that we are unworthy. There are certain hymnals that I'm getting angry that people are changing the words of, but one of them is, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. And and modern-day hymn writers and hymn singers want it to say, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a sinner as I? The original uh, author of that song said, For such a worm as I. And to truly say that we are a worm is not only an insult, but it's a very accurate insult. Boy, we were about a buck and a half worth of dirt when Jesus found us. And I'm just afraid that people take praise and they... They even strive and do things for the Lord Jesus to earn men's applause. That is a terrible reason to serve God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? As if thou hast not received it. In other words, the Bible is saying, What have you accomplished in your life that was not given by God? You see, a secular idea is this. Well, you have sharpened your talent. right? You have sharpened your voice, or you've sharpened your public speaking ability, or you've become better as you've practiced. But the Bible and a Christian idea teaches a whole different thing. The Bible says, every good and perfect gift cometh from above, cometh from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness. You see, He did not gift you so that you could develop that gift and take glory for that gift. He gifted you to put that to use in His ministry and to affect the lives of other people. What did you, what, why could we glory in something that we did not get ourselves, but we received it from God? That's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything uh, as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. If we're going to make Jesus our focus, we need to uh, be willing to forfeit praise. Secondly, we must be willing to fold our position. Verse 28, the Bible says this, Ye yourselves... Bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. Now I want you to just flip back maybe two pages in your Bible to John chapter 1. 
And we'll learn the heartbeat of John and the message that he proclaimed his entire ministry. John chapter 1, verse 19, the Bible says, And this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou a prophet? And he answered, Oh, no. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? Now, this is a wonderful time. If somebody wanted to puff their ego up, this is a tremendous time. John could say, well, have you read the book of Isaiah lately? Yeah, I I mentioned him there. Yeah, I'm kind of a big deal, he could have said, but he did not. He goes on and says, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Uh, And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not the Christ, nor Elias, Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. He says, there's one guy in this crowd among you right now, and he's not yet revealed himself, and you do not yet know who he is. But when he comes, he's going to make me look like a drip of water in the ocean. You don't understand, boys. When the guy that I'm a forerunner to comes, uh, he's going to be more than you could ever uh, think of. When Jesus comes on the scene, it's going to be incredible. And I'm just here telling you about it. Well, there's a special thing that happens here in verse 35. The Bible says, again, the next day after John stood, and two of his disciples. Now, it is very unique that in chapter 1, John has two disciples, and in chapter 3, he has several disciples again. But I want you to see what John does here. Verse 36, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, the Bible goes on to tell us who these disciples are. One of them the Bible specifically labels as Andrew. I have a significant uh, interest in Andrew because I happen to be named after him. But the Bible says about Andrew that as soon as John redirected Andrew to Jesus, he first first findeth his own brother, Simon Peter. In other words, I wonder why Andrew did not seek out John uh, uh, or his brother when he was a disciple of John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was special, but he wasn't the Savior. And when Andrew saw the Messiah, the only thing he could think about was bringing his loved ones to Jesus Christ. And I have to say, if you as a Christian do not have a burden for your loved ones, I don't, I don't care much for the type of Christianity that you have. It ought to hurt you. I know that it hurt the rich man. In fact, he's in hell, and he, once he finds out, he can't escape. 
hell, you know what he says? Well, send me. Send, send, send a, a Lazarus that he may go up. Send someone from this wretched place that they may be a witness to my family. And Father Abraham says, if they don't believe Moses and if they don't believe the prophets, they're not going to believe the one rose from the dead. But nonetheless, we find Andrew following after Jesus. Now, could you imagine being John the Baptist, losing a guy like Andrew, an aggressive soul winner, a guy who loves the Lord with all of his heart? It would seem like to me that would affect his ministry. Now, the second guy that John the Baptist loses here is not specifically mentioned. And we're in the book of John, and that's John the Beloved's book. In fact, he wrote five books in the Bible. This one, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and also the book of the Revelation. He wrote all five of those. And he, he was unique in the way, in his book specifically, any time that he was in the story, he did not mention his own name. Now, some have debated the reason for this. Uh, some think it was because of his humility. And I would probably lend to that agreement. He, he didn't even feel worthy to be listed in the book that he was writing. So many times he would just omit his name or just label himself as the beloved one. But nonetheless, the fact that he is not specifically mentioned here, and it's almost like the second disciple disappears totally, most Bible theologians would agree that Andrew and John the Beloved are the two disciples that leave John the Baptist's ministry to go to the ministry of Jesus. Could you imagine being John the Baptist? Two of your own. I mean, these are two guys you've prayed over, you've cared for, you've loved, and once Jesus shows up on the scene, they just leave you and follow him. Can I say that's exactly what's supposed to happen? It's supposed to work out that way. What we ought to do is lead people to the Lord, uh, help them learn of the Lord, and then leave them to the Lord to do whatever He chooses with their lives. It's appalling to me how sometimes we get so protective of those under the umbrella of our ministry that it angers us when they have to move on to another area of service. These people in this congregation are not my people. I am the under-shepherd of the great shepherd, and you are the sheep. And what's supposed to happen is sheep are supposed to serve the great shepherd, and they're supposed to go where he wants them to go, and they're supposed to do what he wants them to do. But what happens is sheep start getting overly protective of sheep. And they say, well, if you take them from my bus route, how am I going to survive? Well, I've got an idea. Go grab another one. John the Baptist, chapter 1, loses his two best disciples. Chapter 3, guess what he has? More disciples. Look, that's the natural progression of uh, Christ's ministry for us. It's to win them, baptize them, and teach them. We don't teach them so that they can get more knowledge. We don't teach them so that they can just become uh, uh, educated Christians. You know how we teach them? So that they may be able to commit the things that they have learned to others so that they may be able to commit them to others. What we must do is we must realize that it is Christ's ministry and not ours. 
And whatever Christ has for those in our ministry, we must be willing to forfeit our position and say, Lord Jesus, whatever it is, I leave them in your hands. And when they're in your hands, I know they can do incredible things. We need to fold our position. Thirdly, I want to share with you this. We must be willing to focus on his priorities. We must be willing to focus on his priorities. Now, take your Bible back to John chapter 3. Our original text, verse 29, the Bible says this. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Oh, what John the Baptist sets here is actually a, a modern-day example that we can explain quite well. He, he sets up this illustration of a wedding. And right here, Miss Mary, is it the bride stands on the right? You help me with that. Okay, so here, here's how it goes. The bride stands here on the right. The, the ugly groom stands here on the left. And they've got their whole, uh, I used to call them uh, uh, men of honor, I don't even, but they're, they're the groomsmen, right? And uh, I'm in a wedding here come June, and I got told the other day that I was one of nine lucky selectees. I, boy, I feel special, one of nine. I don't even have nine friends, but man, I'm in a wedding with nine other guys. So uh, here's nine groomsmen, and here's nine maids of honor or bridesmaids, however, yeah, bridesmaids it is. And the, the, the bride has what we call her maid of honor. I figured it out, though. I've done a few weddings. She's the girl that fixes the dress. When the dress gets caught in the door in the back and the bride is still on the stage, she goes back to the back and folds it up like a carpet so that we can carry on with the ceremony. And the the groom, who's getting married, who has way more things on his mind than just the trivial things that go on in a wedding, uh, like how much money is going to be on the money tree at the reception, um, he's there and he's looking at his lovely and wonderful bride, and they're excited about this day, and uh, they don't know what's about to hit them. But uh, they're excited nonetheless, in ignorance albeit, but they're excited And then he has what's called his, what, best man. And what your best man is supposed to do is he's supposed to have your back. He's supposed to take things off your plate. He's supposed to help you. And the only reason he's there is to make your day easier and your day better. Now, this is the illustration that John paints. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take a little liberty with it. Do you, Mrs. So-and-so, take so-and-so? Do you, Mr. So-and-so, take Mrs. So-and-so? I do. No, 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 no. (laughs) I do. Well, by the power vested in me, I don't even know how I'm supposed to say. I usually just read it. But by, I'm a minister of the gospel and I'm allowed to do this, amen. You may kiss the bride. That's everybody's least favorite part because it gets super awkward right now. But the bride and the bridegroom, I remember Craig and Mandy's wedding, Craig threw her down. and I'm like, Craig, man, come on, brother. Whew. 
That's my sister and brother-in-law, but anyway, you may now kiss the bride. And this is where I'm going to take the liberty. This is kind of what happens in modern-day circles. We, the groomsmen, jump in front of the groom, and we enjoy the pleasure of the kiss. Now, if you ever attended a wedding like that, how do you think that would go over? The groomsmen box out the groom so that he may kiss the bride? I don't think that'd go over very well. That's not the way it works. What happens on that day? The groom's friend is there to support the groom. And at the moment when that marriage is made public and final in the eyes of God and in those that are there gathered to uh, witness this ceremony, you know what happens? The best man stands here and he says, Awesome. That is wonderful. My friend is getting to... Uh, enjoy the love of his life. This is awesome. They finally met. They've married. This is amazing. And John says, I'm just the friend. It was never my bride to begin with. And, And he goes on to say, this my joy is fulfilled. He says, I'm happy when Jesus is happy. Whatever makes Jesus happy with with me, that's when I receive joy myself. Here's the problem in a lot of Christians' life is they're seeking joy on their own account and they have no regard for what is joyful to the Lord Jesus. They're trying to gain pleasures on their own. They're trying to find peace. They're trying to find contentment. And all the while, they have no consultation to Jesus and they just say, Lord, whatever goes down is going to go down, but I'm trying to find true joy and I'm trying to find true happiness with no regard for the priorities of Jesus in our life. John says, the only way I could ever be happy is when Jesus is happy with me. So many Christians, they don't even care about that. They don't even wonder, they don't even uh, uh, worry about whether Jesus is happy with them or not. And a lot of Christians think this. Well, I can be happy on my own, and I can also seek the joy of the Lord. Did you know they're distinctively different, and it's radically impossible to do so? Now, there's this idea that humans are good at multitasking. Well, by do not text and drive campaigns, I think we've established that that's probably not the case. But nonetheless, science has proven that humans are not able to, to multitask at all. In fact, I'll read you just an excerpt of the research that I've done. This says, people can't multitask very well, and when people say they can, they're deluding themselves, said neuroscientist Earl Miller. And he said, the brain is very good at deluding itself. Miller, a Piekauer professor of neuroscience at MIT, so he's probably not very smart, says for that, for the most part, We simply can't focus on more than one thing at a time. What we can do, he said, is shift our focus from one thing to the next with astonishing speed. Switching from task to task, you think you're actually paying attention to everything around you at the same time, but you're actually not, Miller said. You're not paying attention to one or two things simultaneously, but switching between them very rapidly. Miller said there are several reasons the brain has to switch among tasks, 
One is that similar tasks compete to use the same part of the brain. Think about writing an email and talking on the phone at the same time. Those things are nearly impossible to do at the same time, he said. You cannot focus on one while doing the other. That's because of what's called interference between the two tasks, Miller said. They both involve communicating via speech or other written word, and so there's a lot of conflict between the two of them. What we do is we we are so prideful that we think that we are the one that can multitask with the joy of the Lord here and the joy of ourself here. We think that we can seek God's will for our life on some accounts, and we think that we can seek our will on other accounts. But truly they are controversial. They are uh, contrary to one another. Your will and the Lord's will are totally opposite. That's why uh, 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 Old Testament prophets said, How long halt ye between two opinions? You can't believe both. And what we need to do is, we, like John, need to just start saying, when Jesus is happy, I'm happy. Whatever it is, I'm not going to multitask. I'm not going to switch between his joy and my joy. I'm going to honor the Lord with my life. Now, we've covered several of these, and we are at our last point with much time to spare. So I want to share with you the final thought. We must be willing if we are to put our focus on Jesus, to face his preeminence in our life. We must be willing to admit that we are not the reason we're here. And we're not the reason that we're living our life, but there's one call that is greater than ourselves to love our God supremely. He has to, first of all, be preeminent in our needs. Now, John the Baptist is not only an awesome character in the Bible, he's quite an odd character in the Bible. I had a pretty lengthy discussion with my mother this week about the oddity that was John the Baptist. Now, many of you may recall what the Bible says his diet consisted of. If you don't, I'll I'll inform you, it was honey and grasshoppers. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 3, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Now, could you imagine, go back to your salvation testimony. Maybe Mine was at youth camp, whether yours was in your home or whether yours was at a revival meeting, wherever yours was, and you walked that aisle, and you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit on your life, and you come down and you say, I need someone to kneel with me and show me how I can trust Jesus as my Savior. And they usher you over here. This is my testimony. They usher me over here to one fellow, and I go sit down with him, and he says, I want to start in John chapter number 3. And when I see his teeth, there's something distracting me. There's a grasshopper leg. Right in his teeth. You know, like sometimes you're in conversation with somebody, they got a piece of broccoli right there, and you're not sure whether to tell them or not. And the whole time, you're, in, you're trying to get saved, and yet you're having tremendous difficulty focusing because the grasshopper leg's kicking. Could you imagine that? I know it's a little facetious. It's kind of a little silly. But truly, 
Could you imagine going and saying, yeah, I'm going to go to John the Baptist's revival tonight. I hear he's a tremendous preacher. And then your friend says, you know, I was on the back 40 the other day, and I saw John pick up a grasshopper and eat it. You sure you want to go listen to that guy preach? Well, now that you inform me of that, yes, I want to go see this circus that's come to town. I know that's silly, but how odd is it that a guy chooses to make his diet of wild locusts and honey. That's pretty odd. But I do believe there's a lesson here. John was not concerned about outward opinion of himself, nor his own physical health. You know what his only concern was? Ushering Jesus Christ into this world. His only focus was that Jesus would be pleased with his life. He was sharing ultimate preeminence that Jesus Christ was the preeminent one in his life. He's preeminent in his needs. Now, we get so sidetracked with needs nowadays. And we're very good at confusing needs for wants. But truly, when we get the heart of John the Baptist, and we're willing to sacrifice in an area or give up in an area, and we say, whatever Jesus wants of my life, That's what I'm going to do. That's when we'll see great revival in our church. When we all with one accord can sing, and I don't mean just sing, but I mean truly from a heart of sacrifice sing, Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All I need. But no, what we do is we sit in our pew and we We hear people sing those words. We look at the songbook as the words are being sung. But there is no genuine meaning behind what it is. Because as soon as we get done singing that song, you know what we say? Well, where do you want to go eat today, honey? Well, I want to go to Whataburger. And you say, Whataburger? That's not good enough. This is a Sunday afternoon. Well, let's go to Rosas. Rosas? That's not even Mexican food. We've still not figured out what Rosas is. I'm talking about outback. I'm talking about driving all the way to Hewland to get some salt grass. That's a Sunday afternoon meal, amen. But how hypocritical of us is it to sit there and sing, Christ is all we need, and then go enjoy our luxurious, lavish lifestyles that we have. It's quite hypocritical. Man, I wish our church could get to the point where Christ really was all we need. And when you find out Christ is all that you have, that's when we'll find out Christ is all that we need. Not only does he need to be preeminent in our need, Jesus Christ needs to be preeminent in our ministry. This 30th anniversary is a very special time. Boy, I'm looking forward to the events. We're already planning the events out that are going to happen. We've got... uh, Not only are we doing special things for our anniversary service in June, we're already forecasting out and planning huge evangelistic outreaches. We've got a rodeo planned in September, I believe it is, where we're going to have all these bus kids, we're going to have all these bus parents, we're going to just, we're going to host our own rodeo so that people may come to hear the gospel. And brother, uh, uh, Sean's going to ride a bull, and and I'm going to ride a sheep, and... uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. 
We've got things planned out. Man, I'm looking so forward to the year. I'm looking forward to honoring our pastor who started this church. Do you, how do you value 30 years of man's life? Many of you don't know this, and I'm not trying to lift him up, because here in a second I'm going to share with you my intent for going this direction. But do you have any idea how many times me and my father were going to play golf and we just couldn't because something came up? Do you have any idea how many times we were going to do something as a family and we just had to cancel because there were other things in the church that took preference? How do you value that? And I am honored that I get to be a part of the planning process to honor this man who started our church. But make no mistake about this year. This year is not about Dr. Gene Wolfenbarger. It's not about the Wolfenbarger family. This year is about Jesus Christ, just like every year before and every year after. Although the Bible says that those uh, who are worthy of honor should receive honor, and although the Bible says that the man of God ought to receive double honor, I'm happy about doing all those things, but if he deserves double honor, Jesus deserves all honor. Jesus was the one that died for us. Jesus is the one who rose from the grave for us. Jesus is the reason we're meeting tonight. It is not to hear Dr. Wolfenbarger, and it is not to hear me. We all know that's true. It is to honor Jesus Christ with our lives. And the day that this ministry begins to become more about men than it becomes about the master is the day you see my letter of resignation on the desk. I want no part of a church who honors a man in place of where God should be. We must honor Jesus Christ in our ministry. And while I am trying to take great precaution in that this year, Brother Jay, on your bus route, I need you to do the same. Brother Sean, in your Sunday school class, I need you to do the same. If you serve in this church in any area, Teenagers, you're a part of our youth group, especially y'all that are here tonight. You're, you're leaders. You're the backbone of our youth group. You know what I need you to do? I need it not to be about you. I need it to be about Jesus. And when you ask yourself if you should come to a youth activity, you ought to ask, well, would Jesus go to an activity where I can be around other Christian believers that might be able to encourage my faith? It ought not be about you. I'm tired about planning activities for you. It's about Jesus. Don't get confused, church. For the gym, every week you run those buses, every week you have those kids in that back room. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And if all you do is sit in these pews and sing hymns as we uh, congregational sing, and all you do is sit in these pews and write out checks because you're not physically able to serve in a greater capacity and you're just honoring the Lord with your substance, if that's all you do, then make sure it's about Jesus. I want no part of a church, and I want no part of a church with people who have Jesus as a peripheral focus. Jesus says that if I be lifted up above all other distractions, above all other things that might call for attention, if Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. The moment we start lifting up other things, is the moment people are repelled by our message. 